Okay, normally I try to give either a snappy intro or something to really ease you into the topic and disarm some of your anger with a joke, but holy fuck, you read the title. And uh, can't guarantee that you won't hate me coming out of this one. But I will try my absolute hardest to give you good information along the way, okay? Whether you're a leftist, ACAB, police-abolishing anarchist, or a right-wing, I'm-only-fascist-because-they-offer-you-pizza, thin-blue-line-waiver, Hopefully you'll learn something out of this. Maybe it's that policing isn't something we can really afford to get rid of right now. Or, maybe it's that policing isn't the good old-fashioned Americana you think it is. So, just take a deep breath and get ready for this episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Why Aren't You Talking About This? I'm your host, William, and I will be your scared shitless guide through everything you could possibly want, need, or be forced to learn about the police. But, as always, it means the world to have my voice crawling into your ears like the bugs that are also totally crawling into your ears right this second. Honestly, kind of surprised you didn't notice that. Oh, and also, sorry about last week, and probably my uh, voice quality for this episode, uh... Grandpappy Nurgle really fucking got me, and I am still pretty sick. Uh, but anyways, uh, make sure to keep sending in suggestions for episode 20. That is coming up very soon. We're on episode 16 now, so we're only, what, two months away? Trust me, it's coming sooner than you think. Much like me. Anyways, also make sure to download the show, stream it, review it, like it, whatever else it is you can do on your platform of choice. Also, share the show with your friends, family, strangers on the street by screaming at them way tat until they start to cry, acquaintances, co-workers, and anyone you think would enjoy hearing a young man talk about comedy and fanboys while making light of the world burning down around him. But with that, on to the show. Alright, alright, enough stalling, which is something I'm probably going to say a lot in this episode. Uh, this episode is on the police and, in general, the concept of law enforcement. So let's begin by defining what those are. Law enforcement, put simply, is a group of people that generally work for the government, ensures people follow the rules by investing in crimes, handing out fines and punishments, and making arrests or detaining people. And a big part of this are the police. Police are a civil force of a government that are intended to maintain public order and do the grunt work of preventing, detecting, and intervening in crime, as well as performing various duties around investigations and getting people to court. And every country and culture has its own specific way of fulfilling this, but every country with a functioning government has one. And if you're about to disagree, think for a moment. 
By that definition, yes, even Neighborhood Watch and things like vigilante courts are law enforcement. Like, how if there were no cops, law enforcement or your local Walmart would be whoever they dislike enough to put on door duty that day. However, very commonly, police, at least in theory, are based upon the principles of policing developed by Sir Robert Peel in 1829. And the reason why these Peelian principles are used is quite simply because Britain used to own basically everything, and a good, like, half of the cultures around the world are at least a little influenced by them because of imperialism. And also, like, four or five of their colonies really turned into imperialist bastards, too. And the fact that there's, honestly, probably more than five you could say that about really says a lot and is also the point. So, what are these principles? Well, let's, before going into them, look at the core ideas around policing developed by Robert Peel. So, firstly, the goal is crime prevention, not making arrests or catching criminals. The second is that the key to preventing crime is ensuring public support. With every member of your police force both responsible for preventing crime and volunteering their aid. And finally, that police earn support and approval by respecting the principles of the community. And what these three mean together is that the core of crime prevention is ultimately, by understanding the community you serve as people, often as individuals, and wanting to help rather than wanting to catch the bad guys. If you're already thinking, ah, that doesn't really sound like how we do it, you just wait, because what comes next will either make you laugh your ass off or cry your eyes out. So the first Peelian principle is that police prevent crime and disorder as an alternative to repression by military forces, which makes sense because, you know, the military's primary job is killing people. A lot of them, and mostly well-armed people, mean that sending them in after civilians is a really bad idea because of the amount of damage they cause and also how many people would die. The second is to recognize that the power of the police to fulfill their functions and duties is dependent on public approval and respect. And again, this makes sense because... If your people respect you, they're less likely to take the side of criminals and also probably won't do crimes anyways because it feels like the authorities respect them enough to get help from them. The third is to recognize that to secure and maintain respect and approval means securing willing cooperation. Again, they'll only respect you if you aren't forcing them to do shit. Fourth, to recognize that the extent to which cooperation can be secured diminishes proportionally to the necessity of physical force and compulsion. Yeah, because humans are stubborn and spiteful and will oppose you on principle if you're being a dick and doing stuff like detaining or beating people in the streets. Fifth is that in order to seek and preserve public favor, you don't do stuff like pander or suck dick on the corner, but instead show impartial service to the law, making friends in the community regardless of social standing or wealth, courtesy and good humor, and sacrificing in order to protect and preserve life. So, you know, basically do the job you signed up for, and also be a good fucking person. Sixth is to use physical force only when persuasion, advice, and warning don't work, and the force is necessary to secure or restore order, and only to the minimum degree necessary. And again, makes sense, because your job isn't to beat the fuck out of people, it's to enforce the law. And most people are willing to follow laws if they both respect you and you don't come in aggro. I mean, even for the rare person you need to tackle, that's probably all you got to do, because once someone's on the ground, they've lost, unless they're, you know, an actual good MMA fighter, which is like finding my dick not in your mom. The seventh, to maintain at all times a relationship with the public that gives reality to the idea that the police are the public, and the public are the police. 
which is basically saying that the people seeing the cops should be able to see the human underneath, and the public also upholds law and order through their own actions. Eighth is to recognize the need for strict adherence to police executive functions and to avoid even seeming like you're disrupting the normal legal process. Or in other words, no executions, fucko. Your job is to stop crime from happening, and if it does happen, you get the person that did it to the people that do the punishing. Okay, and finally is to recognize that the test of efficiency is the lack of crime and disorder, not evidence of police action. If you're doing such a good job, no one can even remember the last time they saw a crime happen. That's effective policing. But if people see cops everywhere, but crime is still happening, their thought isn't, wow, this is efficient. So now with those principles and foundational ideas laid out, how many of them do America follow? Oh right, none of these. And we're one of those bastards I mentioned earlier. But, okay, okay. Let's go through the actual hierarchy of law enforcement in the U.S. Just to see where this starts to fall apart. Okay. So at the top, we have the Department of Justice. Led by the Attorney General of the United States. They have direct supervision over the Deputy Attorney General, or the DAG, who oversees two positions, five offices, and two other big branches directly. So the positions are Solicitor General that supervises and conducts Supreme Court litigation, basically what makes it to the Supreme Court, and the Associate Attorney General, who's in charge of 13 offices and divisions that are related to civil justice, federal and local enforcement, federal and local law enforcement, and public safety. And those would be the Office of Justice Programs, Community-Oriented Policing Services, Executive Office for U.S. Trustees, Office of Information Policy, Office on Violence Against Women, which is fucked up to happen so much that it needs an office three steps down from the fucking Attorney General of the U.S. goddamn A, Foreign Claims Settlement Commission, Office for Access to Justice, Civil Rights Division, Civil Division, which represents the government in court, Antitrust Division, Environmental and Natural Resources Division, Tax Division, and the Community Relations Service. Whew. And the offices the DAG oversees are the Office of Legislative Affairs, Legal Counsel, Legal Policy, Public Affairs, and Tribal Justice. Follow me, camera guy? Okay, so the DAG also oversees the two branches. The first contains the FBI, Criminal Division, DEA, Bureau of Prisons, who have the worst fucking website, by the way, U.S. Marshals, Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, Interpol Washington, U.S. Attorneys, which for the fuck of me, I can't find the difference from the Executive Office in a form of English that makes sense to me, and the ATF. The other branch includes the National Security Division, the Offices of Professional Responsibility, Inspector General, Pardon Attorney, the U.S. Parole Commission, Justice Management Division, Executive Office for Immigration Review, Office for Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, and the Professional Responsibility Advisory Office, and holy fuck, as a lot. Now, the astute amongst you that somehow understood all of that, and also could hear me list all of that very fast with a sick voice, might have noticed something. Nothing about controlling actual state law enforcement. And sure, the AAG technically can, but they actually can't. Because the position has advisory organizations under it, not actual cops. So then how does that work? 
Well, see, underneath the federal DOJ, you have every state's DOJ, which kind of works for the federal DOJ. And the cops kind of work under them. Kind of. See, they don't actually technically work for the DOJ, with one exception, are instead highly independent cellular organizations. So you have local police that can be municipality, county, tribal, regional, city, or town police that uphold local laws, patrol the local area, and investigate local crimes. And there's state police, which is actually and also called the Highway Patrol, that performs statewide investigations, aid local police, handle very big emergencies, guard the Capitol building, just the building, and also, yes, do highway patrols. And then there's the special jurisdiction police that work within another jurisdiction, but a sub-jurisdiction, oh boy, like a park, school, airport, subway, public housing, or government offices, and government security. But not the guards at the Capitol, that's the state police. And finally, you have deputy sheriffs that serve the sheriff office, which which enforces state law at the county level and also runs the jails, serve summons and warrants, and responds to calls where there aren't otherwise cops. Is your head fucking spinning yet? So, to give an example of how this all works, let's take my homeland of Oregon. If you're currently in Portland, Oregon, then the local cops would be the Portland PD, but probably one of its precinct police, which are actually kind of, sort of, but not at all, but also entirely independent from the Portland PD. But you're also technically under the jurisdiction of the Multnomah Sheriff Office and the Oregon State Police. But holy fuck me, if you're in PDX getting ready for a flight, and this organizational chart makes you go postal, then you'd probably get arrested by the PDX PD, who'd hand you over to the PPD, who might send you to serve time in jail, run by the MPD, before sending you to court, where you'll probably be protected by an officer with the OSP. And they might bring you to Salem for trial, so now you're under the protection of another goddamn MPD, but this time Marion County, and the SPD, the Salem Police Department, and, oh fuck, if you go to a courthouse, there's probably the CPD, the Court Police Department, and now take all of this and toss it out the fucking window, because if you tiptoe your little tootsies over the fucking border into southern Washington, about as far as your dick is long, you're now under the jurisdiction of Washington, which is an entirely different system. Holy fuck. And police ranks don't make it any easier. So at the top of this, depending on the department, you'll have a chief of police, a commissioner, or sheriff, or fuck, I mean, maybe all three, or none of those. Chief is the term for a medium-sized department, commissioners are larger departments, and sheriffs are elected officials that lead county police, but also sometimes... Different departments mix and match these. Below them is a position rarely seen called the assistant chief, undersheriff, or assistant commissioner, and guess what they fucking do? But below them is the deputy chief, commissioner, chief deputy, or assistant sheriff that's the primary subordinate of the dude in charge. Sometimes, also, they just call them deputies. I don't know why. And below them, commanding a large chunk of the department, is the inspector or commander Unless inspector is a detective rank that gets used sometimes, seemingly at random, because fuck you and fuck your family and fuck your dog. And if you want this to not be confusing, fuck you. And below that is the colonel or lieutenant colonel that do the same thing, but a slightly lower rank. 
the major is the next that either supervises the large stations or is just a higher-ranked captain, while a captain commands a division, unit, police station, or only parts of the station if a major is in command. And below that is a lieutenant that supervises a group of sergeants, somewhere between 2 and 12 sergeants, and yes, that's the real range, or detective squad, one squad, or a watch shift, or the state department barracks, or an entire precinct in smaller departments. And the sergeants supervise either a squad or a watch shift or an area of the precinct. And then the two lowest ranks are detectives and officers. Detectives are usually plain clothes, and in some places they outrank officers, and sometimes in some places they don't. And officers are normal day-to-day cops, but they can also be corporals that take command in the field. Or, sometimes, day-to-day cops or corporals are called deputies, which, yes, is the same term used for someone of much higher rank if you're looking at the county level, and sometimes the same county will use deputy twice. Are you confused? Now, if you heard all of that and thought that maybe their training would be consistent, then, first of all, you're way too optimistic for this cruel, harsh world, and I really, really wish you the best in life, but it isn't. There are over 600 methodologies and curriculums because there's over 600 academies. However, post-9-11 especially, the training generally focuses on fitness, weapons training, arrest and grappling techniques, interrogation, constitutional law and criminal law, sometimes, not always, and identification of drugs and crime, and in some cases, just fucking counterterrorism. You know what isn't normally on the list? De-escalation skills, critical thinking, and empathy training. And most academies are operated like boot camps, where you get the absolute shit kicked out of you physically, mentally, and emotionally to toughen you up. Which would make sense if you're becoming a soldier, but not a cop. And these things are combined to change the expectations of someone who joins. Because if you're taught that you're a hammer, everything becomes a nail. Yeah, except the hammer is the hammer of a pistol, and the nail is a black teenager minding his own fucking business. And, also, 90% of the time, your job as a cop is going to be sitting in one place waiting for something to happen, popping over to a scene and probably watching someone scream and shout at another person, lie directly to your goddamn eyes, or there'll literally be nothing, or sometimes there'll just be some horrific injury that you have to stand there and look at for a while until the EMTs arrive. Maybe talk, maybe take someone to jail or write a ticket and write a report, and then go back to waiting. So you're not really experiencing a lot of combat. And on top of this, if you compare the training times with other nations, we're providing a shit job at that too. Because the average is 20 weeks. Which is, oh, you know, just about five fucking months. And you get days off. It's not a total of five months of training. It is like, on the calendar, you are in training for five months. However, in other places like Finland and Germany, it can take somewhere between two and four years to graduate from academy, and it's treated a lot more like a college course. I those two examples I used, Germany, it's two and a half years, and Finland, it's three years to become a cop. So to recap, America's system of police is a confusing, highly cellular mass of departments and agencies and divisions that kind of, sort of, but don't really interconnect, managed by positions that go by half a dozen different names, depending on where and who you are, 
in a vaguely defined geographical area, patrolled and staffed by people who are taught how to punch grandma's dentures into her fucking lower intestine, but not how to tell her she's a dumb bitch without saying those exact words to her fucking face, with very little to no critical thinking skills, because the only people that can sit in a single place for hours without getting bored and ruining everything are the biggest dummies alive, and we're surprised that this system doesn't work. Okay, and deep breaths. Sorry, poor logistics, for as often as I am the reason why my logistics are bad, really pisses me off. So, let's cool off a little bit in the history pool. Okay, and here we fucking go again with the ancient Egyptians. Don't worry, you may... Don't worry, you might have, like, maybe two more episodes of shit talking about Egyptians, so suck it up and deal with it. They had a lot of shit that we have now. So during the Old Kingdom, around 2700 BC to 2200 BC, the ancient, the ancient Egyptians had a position that translates as Judge Commandant of the Police, with most police being soldiers who were off-duty for one reason or another. You know, like, I guess the equivalent of being on leave... Uh, or you're cycled out from frontline duty, or you're injured, or something like that. And following the 5th Dynasty, police were armed with sticks, and were used to guard public areas like parks, temples, and markets, and also to make arrests, but they were not in charge of punishments. Oh, and they would also train dogs, monkeys, and motherfucking baboons as police animals. Look, police dogs are scary enough when one's coming after you, but imagine a police baboon. Like, you snatch someone's coin purse and look behind you and a fucking ape the size of a ten-year-old with fangs about as long as your hand is staring you in the eyeballs with their evil chimpanzee stare parkouring off of buildings to reach you. Like, at that point, you need to run towards the cops just to make sure that they can get to you before the baboon figures out where your eyes and nutsack are. Just kidding, they already know where those are. But, from around 2181 to 2055 BC, while remaining much the same, the Bedouin tribe takes on the role of caravan guard and border police as essentially mercenary cops. And, FYI, the Bedouin show up in history a lot and are still around, but they're a nomadic Arab culture that has been in North Africa and the Middle East for literally thousands of years. And sometimes they were hired as soldiers as well. And that's throughout history. A lot of different nations in North Africa and the Middle East have used them as, like, soldiers, police, merchants, sometimes, I think, diplomats. Uh, but in 2040 BC, things changed with the Middle Kingdom. When an actual police agency was founded, and instead of using soldiers, they began to hire and train officers directly. And then during the New Kingdom, in 1550 to about 1069 BC, nice, police are reformed even more and now serve a bunch of new jobs, including interrogator, prosecutor, bailiff, and executioner which in this case is literal by both definitions. They both carried out punishments and killed people the nobles were too chicken shit to kill themselves. And there were also cops that were honorary police that ensured people follow temple and festival rules. Also, they overtook the place of the Bedouin, acting as border, caravan, necropolis, worksite, slave, and administration building guards, as well as doing Nile patrols. And this also introduced the Medie an elite force of desert rangers that protected the capital, borders, and royal cemeteries. However, despite these advances, many people in rural areas were shit out of luck and had to rely on warriors and elders to perform any kind of law enforcement and judgment whatsoever. 
And I mean, obviously, it wasn't just the ancient Egyptians having all this fun. The Babylonians, beginning about 1894 BC and continuing to 539 BC, had its own police in the form of both soldiers and imperial officers. And this was slowly phased out, being replaced by the Pequotas, Pakudus, 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 oh boy, who investigated petty crimes and performed arrests while soldiers dealt with serious shit. And the ancient Indians in the first millennium BC also had police, with the Avastamba Dharma Sutra, a very old fucking book that is exceptionally important to Indian culture, prescribing a form of law enforcement that kings should appoint officers in towns and villages to protect from crime, who would include things like constables, thief catchers, watchmen, and detectives. This is also the origin of the term cut wall, which means local law enforcement commander, but would eventually morph into the term for a commander of a fortress. And of course, the ancient Greeks had an opinion on this too. For them, however, publicly owned slaves enforced the law, and for some reason, that sounds like a hentai plot to me, but that's probably because my brain is broken. But, for example, Athens had a force of 300 Scythian archers, a nearby nomadic horse culture, that acted as guards for public meetings and crowd control. Because, you know, firing arrows into a crowd is a great way to control that crowd. However, citizens performed actual investigations. On their rivals, Sparta, the ephors, a board of five magistrates who were in charge of public order and used the hippies, royal honor guard cavalry as the police. But they also had a group in charge of public order and crimes around children, women, and agriculture as three different departments, uh, as well as the cryptia, a secret police that watched over slaves and were made up of young men and boys being groomed for military leadership, which was one of two kinds of child grooming that happened in ancient Greece. Anyways, on to China. In 770 BC, a system of policing was developed as performed by prefects. And they were temporary positions and had very little actual authority, but they didn't really have to because they were mostly overseeing civil administration. For the actual street enforcement, you'd have sub-prefects who would take civilian complaints and file them to be addressed, as well as like intervening in crimes and arresting people. In ancient Persia, from around 550 BC to 395 BC, their empire had a very well-organized police force, with their territory broken into wards under the jurisdiction of a position called a quipan, who would see to the enforcement of their ward and would hire officers directly. These officers were also prosecutors and carried out punishments. Okay, and now what we were all waiting for, ancient Rome. So during the empire, the military were the ones mostly in charge of security and policing. Local watchmen would mostly handle small shit, while the Tresviri Capitales, Prosecutors Fiscals, Prosecutor Fiscals, let me pronounce that like a white person, and Quatesters investigated crimes. But there were no actual prosecutors. Why? Well, because there was no such thing as state prosecutors it was up to the families of victims or the victims themselves to prosecute. Which is, as you might imagine, extremely elitist and favors the rich. And, uh, hey, did you know that the U.S. and Rome have a lot of common? Now, also under Augustus Caesar, 14 wards were created in Rome, protected by seven squads of a thousand vigiles, 
that served as night watchmen and firemen in the exceptionally dangerous and fire-prone city. Uh, they mostly dealt with petty crimes, criminals, runaway slaves, because, you know, Rome weren't the good guys, and guarded bathhouses, because, you know, Rome weren't the good guys. Other crimes were dealt with by the urban cohorts, who were like the military guard of Rome. Which, to put in context, would be like if you got caught stabbing a man named Stephen, it wouldn't be the police that showed up. It would be the Army National Guard fully decked out to fuck your face with a rifle. Now, while the history for these other areas of the world are pretty condensed because of the whole annihilate their culture to totally ratio them on imperialist Twitter thing that white people did to Native Americans and Africans, it's still important history to cover. So, in pre-colonial West and Central Africa, secret societies were formed to act as law enforcement, even in areas without an organized court system, basically reinforcing like cultural rules and values. Uh, which, by the way, is all that a court system is, if you didn't know that. Meanwhile, in Ethiopia, noble retainers enforced the king's laws, and in the Songhai Empire, Asara Munidios... I... You know what? I'm just going to stop apologizing for my pronunciation. If you've heard any of like, the last five episodes, you should know I'm bad at pronouncing things. Um, but these Asara Munidios uh, were the equivalent to police. And in the Americas, a lot of settled cultures had some kind of well-organized police force. And by settled, I mean, like, built large structures in a single place and lived in them for most of the time, or full-time. Uh, so, like, I think, if I'm remembering any of my Native American history stuff correctly, it would be, like, Pueblos and Southward? Because most other areas of North America, they... Like, Native Americans moved around like they lived in places seasonally. Anyways, uh, however, we don't really know a whole lot about these police forces besides them being mentioned, uh, with the exception of the Mayas, Inc of the Mayans, Aztecs, and Inca. The Mayans had Tupul that served as constables and bailiffs. The Aztec judges directly commanded their police, like, basically like sergeants. And the Inca had a Caraca overseer, and the, oh boy, Toko, uh, Toko Yuriku, oh boy, Toko Yuriku inspector, which means he who sees all, by the way, which is a badass title. But now we have the medieval era. So, outside of direct enforcement range of local nobility, whose soldiers would enforce their rules, towns and villages would make alliances with other nearby towns and villages to keep the paths between them both clear and also safe from criminals and dangerous animals to make sure trade could happen. <clears throat> However, a lot of nations had more complex systems from a top-down perspective like the Wemmick courts in Germany that oversaw secular law as well as law enforcement, or the Shurta of the Islamic Caliphates that oversaw police and international security, but also did stuff like taxes, customs, and trash collection. Although for them, by the 10th centuries, most of their jobs were taken over by the military. Uh, I assume not trash collection, but holy shit, can you imagine? That'd be like in the modern day, like a Humvee rolls down your street, 
blaring fortunate son and then like a squad of soldiers busts out and kidnaps your trash can. Uh I didn't picture that until I already said it. That's fucking great. Uh in France, the police system was broken in half between the Marshal of France and the Grand Constable of France, whose organizations served with law enforcement duties but were mostly military organizations. And Spain had a system of private leagues beginning about the 12th century that would protect from bandits, rural criminals, and lawless out-of-control nobles because the king of Spain was busy as fuck at the time. Uh, and he relied on them as well as the Santas Hermandades. I took six years of Spanish. Let me retry that. Santas Hermandades. I'm sorry to... Both my, to both of my Spanish professors and also my Spanish, both of my Spanish teachers in high school, I I'm an embarrassment. I apologize, uh, but these were holy orders that enforced law and were also well armed roving bands of peacekeepers. Which that sounds scary, but I think that's mostly because I'm an American. Although, if you have evidence of that actually being a fucking terrifying thing, please let me know. That would be great. Uh, but the system with the most influence on America was by far the English common law system. Now, before the Norman Conquest, the English system consisted of tithings, a group of families under a tithingman, which is also a Blumhouse movie coming soon. But each head of household in a tithing had the responsibility of maintaining good behavior in their household and were also responsible for something called a hue and cry, which was essentially gathering a posse of every male in the tithing over the age of 12 that had witnessed or learned of the crime to track down and capture the criminal to be brought to punishment. And if he did that, the tithing the criminal belonged to was to be fined. Which, if you're noticing the glaring flaw in that design, so did I. And no, I'm not talking about uh, deputizing 12-year-olds. I'm talking about who the fuck in that case would rat out their own tithing if it meant Everyone would have to pay a fine. I, but regardless, every ten tithings would be called a hundred, which would be overseen by a reeve. And when combined with the administrative region called a shire, we get the term shire reeve, which became sheriff. Shire reeve, sheriff. But after the conquest, much of the system remained largely in place, but with the addition of constabularies as a combination of royal official and police officer. Assumedly because uh, William the Conqueror saw the shit and was like, yo, this is busted. And then uh, added one position and was like, there you go, that fixes it. And then later died because he drank too much. Uh, and then we see a big leap in policing techniques hit Europe in the 1500s within Stockholm, Sweden. Here, Fully government finance and salaried city guards were organized, having actual uniforms and weaponry to maintain order in the city. And they'd be assisted by the military, firemen, and licensed civilians that dealt with stuff like city ordinances and things. And similar to this, in 1611, the High Constables of Edinburgh were formed to police the city and were responsible for 16 regulations related to curfew, weapons, and theft. Uh, however, for most of the country, it was still local lords determining and enforcing the law for the most part. And in 1667, 
King Louis XIV establishes the Paris police with the purpose says, quote, give the Germans whatever they want as long as they don't hurt us. Oh, sorry, I was reading my World War II propaganda magazine. What I really read was to ensure the police, to ensure the peace and quiet of the public and of private individuals, purging the city of what may cause disturbances, procuring abundance, and having each and everyone live according to their station and their duties. That last one is a little bit, uh, a little bit ominous. But seeing their hated rivals, Europe, reforming the police, the English decided to give its system a facelift in the 18th century. You know, just to make sure that they weren't outdone. Rather than relying on private citizens capturing criminals for reward money or because the weird kid from two villages over got caught fucking a cow, so now we need to gather a posse, they began paying watchmen to do it using taxes. Which is essentially founding the police with extra steps. In 1749, Judge Henry Fielding develops a group of quasi-professional constables to act as cops in London. And speaking of and speaking of London, police were established in London in 1797, despite its lack of popularity. But why was it unpopular? Nationalism. See, the English didn't want to add police because it seemed like an in, a foreign import from France, of all places. Excuse me while I fucking gag on my biscuits. But it was established at the behest of the West Indies Trade Company merchants, that were concerned over a product loss of about £500,000 due to piracy and theft per year. And look, while that might not sound like a lot, that is just under $100 million for the Americans out there, and about £80 million, which is, uh, you know, just a little bit less than the weight of the nut I left in your wife's bedsheets, which is a lot of, I mean, money, but is also very depressing that even back then, Nothing happened until the rich people got mad about it. Speaking of angry rich people, Emperor Napoleon. He established the Prefecture of Police in 1800, and the same year, Glasgow, Scotland, establishes the Glasgow Police Act, which establishes an official police force in the British Isles, something other Irish and Scottish towns and cities soon follow suit on. But, not England. Because England is nationalist as fuck. If you disagree, I'll make fun of your teeth. But 22 years later, Sir Robert Peel establishes a committee to investigate the efficiency of police, and found a bunch of silly horseshit. So he then founds the Metropolitan Police Service in 1829 in London, serving as civilian forces rather than paramilitaries due to the, you know, very reasonable fear of the British public involving the military in civilian affairs. Around the same time, Private police forces also become more popular before Sir Peel works to unify police and the British eventually establish a single policing body. But with that, let's go over to the American side of the timeline. Pretty fast, huh? Within nine pages, even. And I will just say, I did not go all the way up to, like, the modern day with the world history, because I think it's more important for us to, like, cover the origins of policing in this in this episode rather than like talk about all the ways that the rest of the world has fucked up because let's be real the rest of the world has really fucked up with policing just as much as America has 
And if you're thinking of, like, one era in particular where the police were really fucked up, yeah, yeah, you're right. That was, that was like, a really fucked up time for policing. <clears throat> I'm talking about the Nazis, by the way, and the Soviets, but mostly the Nazis because they were fascists. Uh, anyways, let's go over to the American side of the timeline. So beginning in the colonial era, we see a similar system to England of the time, being the common law system. And this means, you know, all of the citizen volunteers, bounties, militia, watchmen, constables, and sheriffs. You know, all the good stuff. And Boston was the first place to have a night watch in the U.S., being founded in 1631. And Plymouth County had the first constable elected in 1634. And what would eventually be called New York City, a rattle watch is formed. And rattle watches are named for the practice of jingling keys to let people know that they're coming. And why would you do this? Well, because crime prevention is the goal. So you don't need to sneak up on people, just scare them into doing the right thing, like not robbing or stabbing or pissing into a homeless man's mouth. The rattle watch patrols look for crime and lawbreakers, just overall. And in 1700, Philadelphia forms a night watch as well. And then in 1704, we have our first reason why we're so fucked. In 1704, the Carolinas begin the practice of slave patrols, which were armed men meant to suppress slave rebellions and prevent escapes. And by 1785, the Charleston Guard, one of the biggest and most well-funded slave patrols, wore uniforms and were well-organized and well-armed. And they were the only fucking police. Yep, the only police in the entire region was a fucking slave patrol. This is also the first well-organized police force in what would soon be the United States of America. Yep, you heard right. And this remained the status quo all the way through to the 19th fucking century. When we copy England again. See, we quickly adopt Pelian principles around uh, 1838, beginning in Boston, which, you know, did not really spread to the South very fast on account of the whole, you know, brewing resentment that will eventually lead to full-blown civil war. And speaking of the Civil War, uh, after it resolved and slave patrols were abolished, you know who continued the practice? Well, ask yourself. What contingent of well-armed racists with both combat and slave patrol experience were around after the Civil War? Yep, the goddamn Ku Klux Klan. In the South, since they were celebrated by a lot of white people, they took up the law enforcement, lynching patrol, and all other kind of quote-unquote policing tasks. And then, as we began to expand westward, who were the ones that did the moving? Well, poor people who are used to a rural lifestyle, especially an agrarian one, and who didn't have a lot to lose. Huh. Who just happened to fit that exact type? Right. Southerners, whose entire land and way of existence has just been annihilated by motherfucking Sherman. And who brought the practices from before Pelian principles were introduced to the North with them? Yep, Southerners. And this is the origin of the system used in the Wild West, including bounties, sheriffs, deputizing people, which is aka raising militia, and yes, patrols of KKK members. 
Meanwhile, on the East Coast, in 1905, the Pennsylvania State Police are established, being the first state police agency in the U.S. Now, up to this point, most of the police in the U.S. were volunteers, elected officials, and soldiers. Which, again, is much like the common law system, even though some parts of the U.S. were operating under the Pelian principles. But, during the revolutions in the 1920s, in everything from technology to culture to booming cities, and suddenly giving a shit about civil liberties, only for white people, let's not go crazy there, the police were forced to change, becoming a more professional organization, adopting new technologies, and receiving proper training. And to help cut down the rampant corruption happening around the time, and to give more centralized power, seems counterproductive, I know, strategies were introduced like cycling costs between communities, a nonpartisan police board, high pay, and a strict merit system for promotions. But as a consequence of this, the organization of the police itself became very internally autocratic. Where what the person above you says is the truth. And also, the police, because of the 19 goddamn 20s, were less focused on petty offenses and put a lot more effort on felonies and catching criminals rather than preventing crime. And then we roll around to the 60s. So after a period of, to put it very lightly, civil unrest, police start to realize, oh fuck, minorities don't like when we beat the shit out of their teenagers and grandparents and throw them in prison and eventually they have enough and stop listening. So they started trying to improve community relations and practice more diverse hiring. That paired with the growing population, even more new technologies, mass police unionization, and surprise surprise, more civil unrest, the cost of police skyrockets. But despite these skyrocketing costs, preferred hires were still ex-military. Why? Well, because police were less trained and more given pointers in the field at the time, and the best way to make sure they don't shoot their eye out is to hire someone that's gotten very good at shooting other people, and also already have, like, weapons and combat training from their experience during the wars. And obviously... This is a bad thing. But it became even worse at the height of the civil rights movement because now television was a thing. And what the cameras caught was fucking horrific. For the first time, people across the U.S. saw the results of what happens when you admit ex-military members into a poorly trained and highly funded police force backed by a long history of racism. Beatings, dog attacks, literally dragging old women out of wheelchairs to arrest them, and yes, that's a real fucking video you can watch, but I advise don't if you don't want to be angry. Shooting at protesters with live ammunition, gas attacks, mass arrests, and literal fucking cavalry charges, I mean like batons point down like they're lances, and in response, LBJ creates the Office of Law Enforcement Assistance which provides funds for local and federal policing agencies, trainings, and research to combat crime. Oh, and they eventually became the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which supported things like CRASH in the 1980s and 90s, also known as Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. What in the fuck, Lyndon? And look, <clears throat> some part of me wants to be like, Oh, he probably just timed the release of this bill poorly because he's been a hero in past episodes. But I want you to pull up a picture of LBJ and just stare the man in the face and ask, 
Are you surprised that he signed a bill into law supporting cops in the same year as the height of the civil rights movement and the Watts riots? Just stare him in the eyes and ask yourself, am I surprised? Am I disappointed? Is this a shocking revelation? <clears throat> but speaking of the Watts riots, this was a six-day stretch of rioting caused after Marquette Fry, a young black man, was pulled over and failed a field sobriety test. Which many believe was actually just an excuse to arrest the black guy. And when he resisted, they beat the fuck out of him with a baton, attacked onlookers that gathered to support him, hit his mom, and also kicked a pregnant woman. Yes, law enforcement. Definitely 100% reasonable and necessary force. I want to reiterate, onlookers reported they kicked the pregnant woman. What the fuck? Uh, and this caused a riot that was eventually broken up by 14,000 National Guard members. And by the end, 34 were dead, which is surprisingly low, but I'm glad it was that low. 1,000 injuries and $40 million worth of damage if you care more about the economy than human lives. You can stop jerking off now, Ben Shapiro. And in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, you don't get to come. Tr trust in the police plummeted, and a lot of police departments stopped doing things like trolls or even being present in the community. And personally, I assume that's out of some sort of spite. But in 1972 and 1973, a study is performed called the Kansas City Preventable Patrol Study which actually proved that police should be doing patrols because it's a lot more effective and efficient. It also prevents crime because people don't want to get caught. But we do have another police fuck-up to talk about, like a major police fuck-up to talk about. In 1985, 500 police officers went to clear a move compound after repeated complaints to the city about stuff like garbage and noise. And move is a black liberation environmentalist and spiritualist activist group in Philadelphia. Well, uh, headquartered in Philadelphia. And I, I believe they're still around. Um, but the cops showed up with a goddamn anti-tank gun. Don't know why. Heavy artillery. Don't know why. Breaching charges. Six fire trucks. And an, an arsenal to make an Idaho militia jerk off while crying in envy, tear gas, and a heavily armed Grand Wizard partridge in a pear tree and besieged the house. A house that, mind you, had children inside. After someone in the house fired a shot, again, one shot, they opened up and filled the house with 10,000 rounds. Definitely 100% reasonable and necessary force. And then they fled the basement and threw in tear gas, tried to breach the fucking walls through joining houses, and eventually, when they still didn't surrender, I, okay, sorry, I have to pause on my script. At this point, I just realized, at some point, as the cops, do you realize that you just suck shit at this? You have literally tear gassed, breached the walls, and flooded the basement. How the fuck haven't you won this engagement? But anyways, when they didn't surrender, 
The cops dropped two-pound bombs of Tovex, a goddamn plastic explosive, onto the roof to blow open the bunker in the basement. I want you to think about that. They dropped from a helicopter a bomb onto the roof to blow up the basement. Have a moment to think about that? Okay, let's move on. But what resulted is a fire that resulted in the destruction of 65 homes and 11 deaths, five of which were children. Yep. And because of this and other atrocities, in the 1990s, police departments began to develop better methods, particularly in two different branches, being community policing and problem-oriented policing. Community policing is focused on developing community relationships and building trust, while problem-oriented policing is focused on identifying the most common crimes and developing response procedures. And kind of conveniently to help with this, also in this decade, CompStat is developed by the NYPD to identify, track, and map crime patterns and trends and to hold police more accountable. And all of this makes policing a lot better and a lot more efficient. Which isn't saying much, because in 1991, the LAPD, after decades of complaints of abuse falling on deaf ears, beat Rodney King to death on goddamn camera. And despite literally watching him get beat to death by four cops, the jury decides to acquit all officers. I mean, unfortunately, we don't know who was on the jury, given that all 12 pussies wore white hoods. But in response, the 1992 LA riots happened, which ended up killing 63 and 2,373 people were injured. Also, keep edging, Ben Shapiro. I'm not going to tell you the economic damage that caused. And in response, and in the end, it was only ended by a combined LAPD, National Guard, Marine Corps, and Army response. Two years after the riot, in support of communities, the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994 was passed, allowing lawsuits against law enforcement in an attempt to rein in their abuse. But despite that, police killings continue. And there's too many to list, but we're going to talk about the four most impactful recent killings. So in 2006, you have Sean Bell, who was fatally shot the night before his wedding, getting shot over 50 times while leaving a strip club. Now, he was hosting a bachelor party, and after one of his friends was threatened, uh he went out to his car. The assumption from a lot of people is that he went out to his car to, like, basically escort his friend home. Some people will say to get a gun, but, like, probably not. It was the night before his wedding, and it was a fucking bachelor party. He was probably just going to go home. And four plainclothes detectives approached with weapons drawn and shot at him 50 times. And now, there is a slight bit of controversy there, because... According to onlookers, they approached, did not say that they were cops, and then when someone in the car 
dove to grab something, presumably a gun, because four people who are openly armed just approach the fucking car after being threatened, the cops just open fire. According to the cops, they said that they were police, drew their guns, and then they tried to drive away, so they shot them. Fucking ridiculous. But then in 2014, Michael Brown was shot by police after he surrendered. But the kicker is the cop threatened him with gun seemingly entirely out of nowhere, and when he surrendered, the cop shot him anyways. And this caused five days of rioting, and this popularized the modern police abolition movement. And in 2016, Rolando Castile was shot by officers in the back while his girlfriend was live on Facebook recording the whole thing. And this caused a lot of questions about, like, uh... And this caused a lot of questions about, like, introducing body cams, which did eventually happen. It did also make a lot of people realize that it is a lot easier to hold police accountable when you record your interactions with them, which is also why there's a lot of videos of, like, cop interactions now. And in 2020, George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin. Chauvin. I don't give a fuck about pronouncing this fucker's name right. But after stopping him, Chauvinism arrested him and pressed his full weight against Floyd's throat despite onlookers and Floyd begging him to stop, presumably because they know that's not okay. And according to most, if not all, onlookers, this was all entirely without reason. It was just a random stop, and he just fucking killed him. And to this day, Floyd is the face of ongoing protests and rioting, and is, and this also, in part, caused the Minneapolis Police Council to pledge dismantle their police uh, in the same year in June. Rest in peace, Sean Bell, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, George Floyd, and every other victim of police violence. You'll be missed, but I hope that you're somewhere better now. Let's take a moment. And let's go to the current. Okay, so we're going to take a slight break from the heaviness for a moment to look at some nice, calming data. So first of all, where does the U.S. rank in spending and total police force size? Well, as far as size goes, we're third in the world behind China and India. China has 1.6 million, and India has 1.58 million cops, while we have 913,161 cops. But what about per capita? See, we have one cop per 362 people, but China has only one cop per 882, and India has one cop per 888. Russia and Indonesia, the runners-up for total cops, is one per 189 people in Russia and one per 472 for Indonesia. So in the top five, if you look at per capita, we're number two. And for spending, we're at third place again, being 2% of our total GDP. Costa Rica spends 2.5% of their GDP, and Russia spends 2.26% of their GDP on police. And what's the result of this? Our crime rate is 57th in the world at 49.2%. At 49.2. For context, the top five highest are 
Venezuela at 82.1, Papua New Guinea at 80.4, Afghanistan at 78.4, Haiti at 78.3, and South Africa and South Africa at 75.5. While other culturally Western countries like the UK is at 47.03 and Canada is at 44.85. So, once again, we spend a lot of money and have a lot of people for very little effect. And this seems to be a theme with problems in the U.S. And with that little breather, let's look at some of the actual issues. So the first and foremost, obviously, is police killings. In 2020, 1,021 people were killed by police, with 24% of them being black. And of all the killings, 827 were armed and 60 were unarmed. Now, if you're confused about how that adds up, 134 killings didn't report if the victim was armed or not, which seems like a very important detail to include. Also, this isn't like in a fight. No, you legally count as armed if the weapon is within reach in your hand or in person. And while by the law books, this isn't the case, in practice, it is. And for those of you thinking that 1,021 people isn't that much, Keep in mind that we're seventh in the world in police slayings. But why are there so many police killings? Well, because as we discussed earlier, cops are heavily armed and are trained to respond with violence and not de-escalate. And is this intentional? Well, in a very, like, leftist way, yes. But not really in a practical way. While yes, policing in America is built on a history of racism and Vigilante justice and the powers that be really wanting to oppress as many non-white people as possible, and so basically being entirely okay with this, the practical side of this is that police receive no training to think critically or de-escalate a person or conflict, but are trained how to shoot stuff real mediocre. And our culture, with all the action drama shows about cops, kind of trains cops and regular people to see their job as a big action adventure where shootouts can occur at any moment rather than the reality of what the job is. So, you know, they get stressed out, trigger-happy, and pissy really easily because the situation only gets worse when someone very expectedly pushed back against them. And next thing you know, you're getting pistol whipped by a man with the same silhouette as a thumb. And related to that is the militarization of the police force. And why is that happening? Well, because there's a bit of a vicious cycle going on. See, military equipment is cool and useful, so the police department will buy some to more effectively do some surprisingly not crimes to people, and then people will look around and go, wow, has it gotten so bad that the cops need M4s and APCs? And because there's this perception, it affects the perceived crime rate, regardless of the truth. So then people, I mean, particularly like white middle class people, push for militarized police to fight the phantom menace, not that one, of criminals, and then the police militarize and people go, ah, oh, fuck, it's gotten that bad, and then it starts over again. But how do they have access to this gear? Well, through government programs, with the 1033 program being the most glaringly obvious one. And the 1033 program allows for the military to sell excess and obsolete equipment to law enforcement. And sometimes it's stuff like medical supplies, which are actually useful. Or sometimes it's stuff that cops burn through, like they're playing Left 4 Dead for the first time, like ammunition. But this also includes weapons, armor designed to take multiple AK rounds to the chest from close range, 
and vehicles like armored personnel carriers and motherfucking tanks. And now we get to the racism. The majority of arrests are minority populations. Most strikingly, 26.6 of all arrests being black people despite being 14% of the population. And no, Stephen Crowder, this doesn't say something about black people, like how your wife leaving you doesn't say anything about women, or being strapped all the time to compensate for being a pussy with a micropenis, doesn't say anything about white people. Please let that get to Crowder. I really want him to hear me call him a pussy. I would fight Steven Crowder in the streets, and I would fucking win. Uh, anyways, there's a few reasons for this. First, if you're familiar with American culture, we're very, very focused on race. And why is that? Well, because, put simply, American culture is racist as fuck. So, law enforcement, enforcing the rules of the culture, would expectedly be pretty goddamn racist, too. But on top of this, because the police departments have very little diversity, with 60% of all police being white and only 18.2% being Hispanic and about 12% being black, even in areas with high Hispanic and black populations, this general miasma of racism goes unopposed. Added on to that, because most police departments really don't want geniuses since most of your job is pretty fucking monotonous, and the lack of critical thinking skills, you tend to get people who are already predisposed to being racist assholes. <clears throat> so you're essentially putting armed racists in areas surrounded by other races with training that teaches them to be a hammer in a room full of nails and telling them that their job is to reinforce a set of rules written by rich racist assholes in the 18th century. Does this seem suddenly not surprising why there's a racism problem? Next is a lack of communication consistency. Basically because police departments are highly independent from each other and also very cellular in their organization, methodology, and records keeping, data and information doesn't travel between them very well. Which means that interjurisdictional information, which means that interjurisdictional information can sometimes get entirely ignored and also means you have to request information from other departments. But also when something crosses jurisdictions, consider this. Who's in charge when something has the attention of both the county sheriff and the local commissioner? Because they have the same rank. But being a highly authoritarian organization, one of them has to be in charge. But also, there's no middleman to determine that. And this only gets worse at lower ranks, because in some places, detectives can order officers around. If they're working with a jurisdiction where actually a corporal outranks them, they're suddenly not in charge. And all of this causes a lot of jurisdictional dick measuring, which translates to really ineffective policing on all fronts. But also because of a lack of communication or database of blacklisted cops, a cop that's fired in one part of the country can easily pack up, move somewhere else, and become a cop again. Which, hey, is a real fucking issue. If that guy got fired for being a sex pest or being a little too trigger-happy on the cop-to-school shooter trigger-happy scale. And speaking of ineffective, holy shit, are the police exceptionally ineffective. And this is despite, you know, increasing militarization, hardline laws, increased violence and suppression, and more and more extreme efforts to suppress crime and, cre and catch criminals. Police routinely do less and less to address crime. Why? Well, besides what we talked about above, 
because there simply is zero trust. Reasonably so. Violence doesn't make people cooperative, especially when they don't want to even have to call you. And hardline stances, extreme methods, militarization, and civil suppression don't really make people think, oh, these guys really fucking love freedom, and causes insane levels of distrust. This ignores the literal centuries of abuse and mistreatment against communities of color, queer communities, we'll get to that, and the poor. This means that most people either not address an issue until it turns into a murder, won't call the police on criminals or crimes in progress, or report things like abuse or concerns about family because, holy fuck, do you not want the call to the police because you're worried for your buddy turning to $40 million of property damage and six casualties. And all this means that cops aren't able to intervene in crimes, often arrive late, meet increased resistance, and also have a hard time investigating or collecting evidence. Now, we also have accountability issues. Because misconduct and excessive force are excessively common. And beyond that, we don't even have good numbers. Why? Because departments have a choice in participating in these audits and censuses. Most of them don't want to don't want to because that looks really bad if 95% of beatings in the entire county are cops beating the fuck out of civilians. Also, police, since they're on a fucking department, would probably be doing the investigation, since it's within their jurisdiction, are usually given immunity for law-breaking. Either in the court of law, or their buddies at the station not reporting them, or just straight up falsifying shit. And added to that, police unions also often champion things that make accountability harder, like limiting the investigation of civilian complaints, mandated destruction of disciplinary records after a certain period of time, a limit to dismantling of civilian oversight, and dictating strictly controlled and usually softer than the shamecock disciplinary measures. And holy motherfucking Christ. So basically our cops reinforce the rules so basically, our cops enforce the rules without being subject to them, and even when we manage to force them to follow the rules, their unions literally stop them from being punished. Which, how the fuck is that the only union powerful enough to give the government the middle finger? Like, I don't think the garbage collector or Teamster union has that kind of power. Okay, and now to look at something that isn't necessarily their fault. The lack of community aid. And this is a humanizing moment for y'all. So, take everything that we've just said, and then remember that the cops are, you know, actual people. In that mindset? Good. Okay. So the police are used as the de facto response to literally fucking everything. Shooting in progress? Traffic stop? 19 car pileup? Drug overdose? Wellness check on your suicidal friend? Bomb threat? 14 Karens at the same deli calling 911 over lunch meat. Clearing out a homeless camp. Someone found a body. There's a suspicious person casing cars. Someone's arguing with a tow truck driver, towing their car illegally. All of this is probably happening within the same precinct in any major city in America right now. And all these scenarios have vastly different responses that, again, they weren't trained for. Because they were taught the most basic and violent shit. And this is dangerous for everyone. Because, remember, this is America. The land of fentanyl and pocket cannons wielded by fuckbrains. So, 
going to any one of these calls might end up being the one where you end up contributing to statistics like the 129 cops killed in the line of duty in 2021. And if you just cheered, fucking calm down, psycho. We all just went over that these are people. But because of being the de facto response for such a wide range of very stressful things, not only do significantly more than that die by suicide per year, we know it's high but not nationally tracked, but also that they're often overworked, underprepared, exhausted, stressed, frustrated, and probably traumatized, which is not a good state to be in to do your data entry job, much less, much less packing heat and enforcing the law. And add on to that, most cops are fully aware no one likes them, and they feel alien, and they feel alienated from the people around them because of that, and also because they're used for again, fucking everything. So most people have at least one personal story about why the cops have made a situation they have personal investment in much, much worse. And since cops show up when anything goes fucky, most people without direct experience associate them with shit going down. And with that, back to your regularly scheduled pig roast. With a whole big list of procedural problems. These being things that the cops can do that further drives down trust. First of which is stop and frisk which is being able to stop someone for literally no reason, do a very uncomfortable search of them and their belongings. And this is used most often for, you guessed it, racism. There's also the practice of no-knock warrants, which is a warrant that the police can get in case of imminent emergency or response to a very dangerous situation that requires an ambush where they don't have to tell you they're coming. They can just blast through the fucking wall like a Kool-Aid man, shoot first and kick ass without any bubblegum, and ask questions much, much later. They don't even necessarily have to check the fucking address or have evidence. They can just ask for a rush job of a warrant to break open your door because a cop thought he heard the unmistakable sound of a meth pipe lighting up. Which is, you know, very dangerous for everyone involved. You especially. And you, especially if your response to suddenly a SWAT team busting into your house, isn't to immediately drop to the floor with your hands over your head. Next is civil asset forfeiture, where the police can claim any property they want if they can claim it has connection to a crime. And under this allowance, if they're wrong, they don't have to give it back meaning that if they need a coffee machine and can claim yours as evidence, they might just do it. Which, yes, is a real example. But this also means that you can... <clears throat> but this also means if you deal drugs on your porch, the cops can seize you to your house and also sell it before you even see a courtroom. And finally, as under U.S. law, police are not required to intervene in crimes, nor are they under any obligation or duty to police the actions of the public. Which, hey, isn't that the literal fucking definition of the goddamn job? Like, it's literally the purpose of law enforcement since the first time a caveman got a little too grabby in the mud baths. Okay, and now we get to the big one that people with pronouns and ACAB and the Twitter bio will usually quote to you. That being domestic violence. And this is going to be your warning. If you're sensitive to domestic violence, skip ahead a few minutes. 
So the average in America for rates of domestic violence per household is 10%. What is it for cops? 40%. Yep, almost all of all households that have a cop also contains a victim of domestic violence of that cop. And that's four times more than average. But why is this so prevalent? Well, at first, because there's no punishment. Since departments could be exposed to civil liability, since is a law enforcement officer using violence on a civilian, and because losing employees is fucking expensive and also not helpful for the whole laundry list of shit they constantly have to do, they don't usually pursue charges. And much less logistically and utilitarian, most people aren't interested in starting shit with coworkers, especially especially when that shit means charging them with a crime and arresting them. And also because they know the law, domestic abuser cops usually have the knowledge required to gain the system and not get charged or caught in the first place. And added on to that, victims can't often get away because cops can access databases of women's and children's shelters and know their locations as well as usually having access to them. And the, result, and the result, only 19% are fired. Not charged, fired. And because police departments don't fucking communicate, this violent asshole can take their victims with them to another part of the country and become a cop again. Now, let's look at that second reason. So, what causes someone to be at risk for becoming a domestic abuser? While experiencing trauma, especially being a witness or victim of domestic abuse as a child, lower education, low self-esteem and insecurity, personality and anger issues, substance abuse, and beliefs around domination and strict hierarchies, particularly patriarchal. Now, if you're seeing yourself, the connections here, good job. You get a good boy star that you can turn at the end of the year for a pizza party. But let's walk through it. What kinds of people are being attracted to being a cop? Well, firstly, someone with lower education and opportunity that wants a well-paying, good career than some particularly conservative areas is highly respected. Or someone who just wants to have power and dominance over others. Or someone with violent intentions who wants to find a way to get away with it and can pass the physical or and background checks. Or someone with intense trauma that's decided to be the hero or someone who is not expecting to end up traumatized, or someone who wants to fix the system from the inside and feels powerless to stop it. And you combine these with all the other people who want to become cops, and then teach them that violence is the answer by literally only teaching them violent responses to conflict, put them in a strict, often male-dominated hierarchy, and add about two and a half table fucks of stress, and you have a person that's very, very much at risk of committing domestic violence. And obviously, that's a personal responsibility thing, and also not something that all people with low education, intense trauma, and a lot of stress living under a rigid hierarchy do, nor is it an excuse for domestic fucking violence, because holy shit, that's a concept of domestic violence, fill me with a rage you can only know from witnessing it, but is it important to know why? Okay, you can come back now, because we're going to talk about some politics, opinions, and fixes. <laughs> Uh, this time we're actually going to start with the solutions, because 
I really want to have a tiny bit of left. So let's start with some more general solutions before seeing what people are into. So first is training reform. So what you do is teach critical thinking, de-escalation skills, giving proper community service training, like dealing with mental health crises and triage medical care. And hey, wild fucking idea, make police sciences a degree program. And this would cut down on violence immensely, since cops not only are more educated and capable of navigating a situation without violence, but also because the implied education is that violence is not the only answer to things. It would also massively increase the effectiveness of police and increase the avenues and effectiveness of community aid. Second is reducing militarization. By making your police less militarized and only allow the big guns to come out when you, you know, fucking need them, this makes everyone a lot safer. How? Well, because the cops aren't carrying weaponry designed to turn humans into mush like Makima from Chainsaw Man, but much louder and much less mommy, and also look like actual fucking people instead of the bad guys from dystopia novel. So they seem like, so they seem more like a part of the community. And the cop side, because people see less militarization as a safer place, people will pack less heat. Also, because people see them more as humans, more people are going to think twice about killing cops because, you know, most human brains really don't actually enjoy killing people. And even when violence occurs, it becomes much less destructive. Third is opening a national registry of police. By requiring all police departments to participate in national statistics, register officers into a national database, and use whatever number of systems your silly little brain wants to organize the entire structure of policing into either a single agency or having an agency like, oh, I don't know, the FBI or one of the other 30 goddamn offices and departments of DOJ controls oversee the database, something crazy happens. You get reliable and accurate stats. And what can you do with reliable and accurate stats? Well, you can reinforce accountability, perform studies, ensure consistent training, and also figure out what works to actually address and fix problems. Fourth is body cams. Now, body cams are kind of serving as the poster boy for the entire field of increasing accountability as probably the most effective way to do it. By having essentially a constant live recording of events that can't easily be deleted or tampered with, especially if it goes to a cloud storage on the motherfucking database from the last point, you ensure that police are more accountable. And, checkmate conservatives, cops actually like this one too. And not just because they trust their co-workers aren't being real assholes on camera, but because people are less likely to commit a crime in front of them or at them because they're being actively recorded. Since even assholes don't want to go to prison. So it's a win-win. Fifth is increasing community involvement. So take your cops and make them a normal thing to see around, not arresting people or being a dick and just chilling in the community, and it'll make the community like them more, and it'll make them like the community more. On top of this, if you hire locally, then not only is the community essentially policing itself, both the cops and the public are literally just interacting with their neighbors, making both of them a lot fucking safer. And if you as well stop measuring and arrest, instead measure criminal activity, on top of that, if you allow for police to make choices beyond arrest, kill, or leave, 
like linking people to charities, social workers, and resources, then you further aid the community and make policing more effective. Sixth is introducing non-cop related community programs. Why? Because this not only generates jobs and social services, and yeah, I know social services people, that sounds scary, but also decreases police involvement, which allows for them to do their actual fucking job. Because their job isn't res to respond to overdose, mental health crisis, wellness checks, dispersing homeless camps, and providing people services. It's to enforce the fucking law. I mean, sure, obviously, they can guard social workers, but police are not your only option to address all of society's ills. Seventh is addressing domestic violence. And this one is much harder to do something about. I mean, ultimately, the hope is that with other reforms, this will start to go down on its own. But we can also address this by creating an overseeing body over the police that deals specifically with domestic violence that can eventually that can essentially void these fucking union contracts and also investigate and, and prosecute separate from the operations of the department. Any other solution would be linked directly to solving domestic abuse as a whole, which, holy shit, that is a very deep and extra thick can of extra chunky worms. Okay, and eighth is just straight-up abolition. Now, if you're rolling your eyes, I get it. I was once in the same boat. But here's the argument. That by abolishing the police, you remove all the problems that they both cause and exacerbate. And by having no police and, therefore, those funds freed up, you can redistribute them to community resources to help people that would otherwise be arrested. This reduces the crime rate, saves lives, and by accurately and precisely dividing the responsibilities of the police to other groups, you can essentially fix all the problems in your community. And I mean, counter, some people are pieces of shit and need to be arrested and sent to prison. And you need people to do that, who would then, kind of by definition, be the police. And I'm not going to pretend to fully understand the philosophies here, because you know, I have two weeks to make these episodes, but it's worth it to really study up on these things. You're going to stand on either side. So, for the opinions on police according to the unwashed masses. So first is training and nonviolent alternatives to deadly force. And only a total of 7% of the public oppose this. 22% of Americans mildly favor it, and 71% strongly favor it, with both lefties and righties having more than 50% favor. Second is federal databases of officers that conduct misconduct. 10% oppose it, 27% mildly favor it, and 62% strongly favor it. Third is civilian oversight boards that investigate and discipline officers. 24% of the public opposes, and of that, only 9% have strong opposition. However, we start to see a pretty big downturn in favor, with only 32% mildly favoring it, and 43% strongly favoring it. And following that trend is requiring officers to live with a police, with only 25% opposing it, with 25% opposing, 39% mildly favoring it, and only 35% strongly favoring, which, uh, in my opinion, is kind of weird to be against it, but, I mean, whatever. 
Next is making a criminal for police to use chokes and strangleholds, which feels like something that should be fairly easy to... Oh, and 25% oppose it. Which is exactly the same amount of people that mildly... Which is the exact same amount of people that mildly favor it. Oh, and only 49% of the general population stri strongly favors that motherfucking choking someone should be illegal. What the fuck? Okay, but look, maybe this has something to do with how well we think the cops are doing. So, let's look at that for some context. So, the cops doing well at protecting from crime. 15% think they're doing fucking amazing. 43% think that they're doing good. 26% think that they're doing... Eh, alright. And 15% think that they're doing bad. Okay. Okay, so if you have the same brain capacity as Neanderthal, that probably answers it. So if you need more information, let's talk about the, use the right amount of force. And 8% of Americans think they're doing a really bang-up job. No pun intended. Uh, and these people have never even looked outside. 27% think they're doing a good job. 28% think that they're doing a fair job. And 36% and 36% think that they're doing a shit job. Which, uh, no fucking shit? But this is beginning to paint a clearer picture. Because about 63% of Americans think cops aren't particularly violent. They don't see much of a need for shit like civilian oversight or strangleholds. So then what are they doing about racial and ethnic fairness? 9% think that they're doing very well. 25% think that they're doing good, and 26% think that they're, that they're doing fairly, with 39% thinking that they're doing bad. Again, what? And we add these up at 60% thinking things are okay again. Which I think, that's the trend. And finally, accountability. Again, 9% think the cops are very accountable, 22% think that they're pretty accountable, 27% are meh, and 42% think that the cops aren't very accountable at all. So, uh, wild that there literally has to be people that think the police aren't accountable, but don't need any kind of oversight at all. Hmm. Okay, okay. So now let's talk about things involving police confidence and changes. So, do people think that the police treat black and white people equally? 48% of white people say yes. Calm down, whitey. 33% of Hispanic people say yes, and 12% of black people say yes. Which, I know some of you are going to say that's racist to say. I personally think that we should take the black people's word on this. Since, you know, they're the ones usually put at risk on this. So we also have the question of if cops are adequately trained to avoid excessive force. 46% of white people say yes, which is probably because most white people can turn on the Midwest, oh, sorry, officer, accident and get away scot-free. 34% of Hispanic people say yes, and only 20% of black people say yes. But regardless, something that you can see that is consistent is that less than half of Americans have confidence in police. So with that, let's see if people think changes are necessary. 88% of black Americans think major changes are required, same as 63% of Hispanic Americans and 51% of white Americans. And 89% of leftists, 60% of independent voters, and a measly 14% of conservatives agree. 
18 to 34 year olds are also the most likely to agree at 81%, while the least likely are 50 to 69 year olds at 43%. Also nice. As far as minor changes go, 10% of black Americans, 33% of Hispanic Americans, and 42% of white Americans think so. 10% of leftists, 36% of independents, and 72% of conservatives think that this is necessary as well. And the least likely to agree this time around are 18 to 34 year olds with 16%, while half of 50 to 69 year olds, nice, think that we need to do some tweaking. And not like the meth kind of tweaking. Alright, and for those in favor of no change, adding all the racial demos together, you literally have 13%. The lowest of which being 2% of black people. 14% of conservatives think that we don't need to change, as do 8% of 50 to 69-year-olds. Nice. Which is also the highest uh, group for, for both of those stats. So what changes are being pushed for? Well, we have lawsuit protection for excessive force or misconduct. And while we already have this, there's some people pushing for expansions on this. Who exactly? Well, 38% of white people and 53% of conservatives. However, before you start imagining who that looks like, 11% of black people and 14% of leftists agree with that. Which, I mean, look, not honestly surprised at the first one, just like you probably aren't, but I'm very surprised at the second. Okay, the other one, which sounds like the most dangerous fucking shit I've ever heard, is the right for civilians to subdue officers to hold them accountable. Yeah, fucking scary, right? And on the, oh, these goddamn minorities are going to forget kind of scary. Like the, oh my god, that's a lot of corpses kind of scary. And the stats on this are really high, with 60% of white people, 86% of black people, and 75% of Hispanic people thinking that this is a good idea. And 84% of leftists and 45% of conservatives agree on this. I gotta say, not surprised, but also really wish conservatives stuck to the party line more and supported this. But yeah, that's basically it. If you expected a big bombastic final speech there in the section, you'd be wrong. That's the next part. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Ah, damn it. Okay, so I was going to try and stall a bit because honestly, sharing my honest opinions scares the fuck out of me, but I got to rip off the band-aid. How do I feel about cops? Conflicted. See, because before this, I didn't understand ACAB and the police abolition movement. I could intellectually see where people were coming from, and I respected the decision and the position. Because I'm not big enough of a dumbass to think my worldview is the only one or the correct one. And I didn't understand these because I thought it was a pure of blank hatred for police. But after doing this research, you know, I actually get it now. The history of racism, abuse, violence, and all the other terrible shit that the police have done mixed with their near total lack of training, the role of law enforcement in enforcing a culture deeply entrenched in racism, and unwarranted Americanization and hero worship is too big of a problem to ignore. It has to be addressed. But, on the other hand, I have a deep-seated respect for police. And I know, I know. 
I know what I just said, but here's why. First of all, because I have a deep respect on principle for people who put their money where their mouth is, on their beliefs, and put their life on the line for it. And this isn't the loving kind of respect that we most often mean nowadays. It's like the kind of respect that I take these people seriously, and on some level, I find that willingness both inspiring and grants legitimacy to what they believe. That while their beliefs and opinions might be horrific, I know they legitimately feel that way and that they need to be taken seriously. And the other kind of respect I feel is much more in the modern sense. Because throughout my life, probably because I'm white, I've never had a bad interaction with cops. During my formative years, police arrived on two occasions and made everything better. The first is a deeply traumatic experience I won't get into, but that ended because police arrived. And those police did everything they could to comfort little six-year-old me. And the other was when I was maybe 10 or 11. The town I lived in at the time was flooding, and I wasn't doing well because I was worried about our stuff getting ruined and our animals drowning. And police were going house to house, checking up on people and offering to drive people out of town. And a local cop did his best to comfort me and reassure me that everything would be fine. And after those events, whenever I've been pulled over, the cop in question was nice to me. And there's been a few times where I've been caught red-fucking-handed with my friends, like, smoking weed before it was legal for us. And the cops didn't give a single fuck and chatted for a few minutes before leaving. And all this combines into a weird soup of feelings. <clears throat> because I find myself agreeing with the concept of ACAB and the abolition movement, as well as the reasons behind it. And I know that their perspective and reason is not only well-backed by history and fact, but also by their own very legitimate, very powerful experience. But at the same time, I don't want to commit fully. Because I can't imagine with all that personal experience of cops helping me and being cool to me, turning around and saying ACAB with my chest out, and actually meaning it. But I also really disagree with the people that wave around thin blue line flags because they seem like they're just actively denying the truth of literally everything that has ever happened in the U.S. and in history that tells us that cops do shitty things. So I guess reform the police may be a lot less shitty and if cops still fucking suck, ACAB. But I, until then, I'm on your side, but I'm not going to say the thing. And, you know, like saying a prayer when grandma drags you to church. Let's get out of here. Alright, and there you go for the cops episode. I hope this isn't the thing that gets me fucking cyberbullied. But anyways, there's episode 16 for you. And again, sorry about the late episode. I am fucked up with the sickness. And you probably could tell during the recording. My recording session is almost two hours just because of all the hacking and coughing I did. But if you have opinions, advice on how to make the show better, any of the 84 funny cop videos that played through my head during this entire thing, your opinions on police and please be nice to me, and really anything else you want to tell me, make sure to email me at waytatpods at gmail.com. That's W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. That was the first time I fucked that up. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat Nerd, where I do basically the same thing, but with nerd topics like fantasy, sci-fi, role-playing games, etc., where I hope you'll like the topics just as much. 
Also, remember to follow me on Twitter, and I, I'm i going to say Twitter just out of spite, uh, at waitat underscore pods for more episode announcements. Have a good night. Don't murder. Have fun. And remember, fuck the police. In whatever way you prefer that to mean. This has been Why Are You Talking About This, and I've been your host, William. Good night.